the movie Walk the Line is about the life of Johnny Cash. Uh, and in the scene in the movie when Johnny Cash was discovered, he and his band were trying to play a gospel song to a producer. The producer told Johnny he wanted to hear music from his heart. And Johnny again tried to play a gospel song. The producer told him to leave. Johnny asked what the guy wanted. And the guy said something along the lines of, If you're just about to die and you only get to sing one song, what is it? They said, that's the song I want to hear. And in the movie, Johnny's band played the Folsom Prison Blues, and that's how he was discovered. Now, what stood out to me about this exchange was the producer's words, if you could only sing one song before you died, what would it be? Let me ask you a similar question. If you only had one opportunity to share one message with someone, what would it be? I thought about that, that question as I was studying the passage and what we're going to talk about tonight. Now, we know what the Apostle Paul would answer to that question. We, we have a, a picture of that in Acts 26. He's called before King Agrippa to, and allowed to speak for himself in defense of all of the accusations the Jews are making against him. He has a, a tremendous opportunity to say whatever he wants to say in order to defend himself. And so what does Paul do? He shares his testimony about Jesus saving him. He shares the gospel. And he calls on King Agrippa to receive the gospel himself. Given an opportunity similar to Johnny Cash, the Apostle Paul, what message would we share? If someone gave us an opportunity to share one message with them, what message would it be? Now, it's probably not surprising given the title of our series and that we're in church on a Wednesday night. But the one message we should share is the message of the gospel. I don't want to talk about why tonight. So open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, page 879 in the Pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read all 11 verses, uh, but we'll primarily be with verse 3. Scripture says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which you also have received, and wherein you stand, by which you are saved, if you keep in memory that which I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas and of the twelve, and after that He was seen of about five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain of this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James and all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was given me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach and so ye believed. The title of the message tonight is the priority of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you for just the privilege of getting to be your children, the privilege of getting to gather in freedom and the opportunity to sing your praise, to study your word, to pray knowing 
you hear us. Help us, Lord, to redeem this time and the opportunity we have. Let what we do tonight not be just a box we check or something we're supposed to do, but an encounter with you that strengthens us and draws us closer to you, helps us to have a greater commitment to the gospel, to know Jesus better, and be better able to go out this week and boldly declare the good news about Jesus Christ. Fill me with your spirit tonight. Help me to have clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me not to to get in the way at all for what you want said and what you want done. Take the word, sink it deep into our hearts, and let it bring forth good fruit for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, our our key phrase for tonight in verse 3, For I delivered unto you first of all. Now, this phrase, first of all, is worded differently in different translations. The Christian Standard Bible says he delivered unto them what was most important. The English Standard Version says he delivered the gospel to them as of first importance. The New Living Translation says he delivered unto them what was most important. And then the Passion Paraphrase Translation says he delivered to them what was of utmost importance. Now, in all of those various translations, all of those various renderings of that phrase, do you see the constant theme throughout? Right, The theme throughout is the gospel message is the priority message. Now, the gospel message is the priority message. Now, again, this is pretty simple, but it is an important truth to grasp because there is in our world today a never-ending supply of competing messages. People and groups want us to take their message and make it our priority message. But we must not do this because many times we only get the one shot. And by one shot, I don't mean we get one chance to tell a message and then we die. I mean, in talking to someone, very often we get one opportunity to communicate a message to them. And a message of value, a message that is meant to change their life. And that one opportunity, the gospel must be our priority message. So what I want to do tonight is give you three reasons why the gospel is the priority message. And then three ways to ensure the gospel is our priority message. Right. So first, the gospel is the first message people must receive. This is why it must be our priority message. The gospel is the first message people must receive. Now, think about the answer to this question. What is the most important message? What is most important for someone to believe? Is it how to vote in the coming election? Is it the evils of abortion? Is it the sin of homosexuality? Is it creation over evolution? Is it human sexuality and gender identity? Is it Bible versions? Is it women pastors? Is it methods of baptism? Is it the end times? Is it music styles? Or is it the gospel? Now, that sounds like an easy enough question to answer. But you'd be surprised at how many times well-intentioned disciples of Jesus get it wrong. I have been on evangelistic visits where the first message shared was something other than the gospel. Sometimes it was the, and it was intentional on the part of the evangelist who got off on something else, a side issue other than the gospel. Sometimes it was what happened was a result of a question 
the person that we were trying to evangelize asked, and it kind of took off down a rabbit trail that we never got back to the gospel. And what we have to do is we have to be on guard against both of those temptations. Right? We have to, to guard against our natural temptation to want to share something that maybe we're passionate about, an issue we are very vocal about, something we think is really important. Because whatever we're about to share that's not the gospel is not the first message they must receive. We have to be on guard because people do ask questions as we talk to them about spiritual things. And those questions can lead us down a path that will take us away from the gospel and and will cause us to miss our one good opportunity to share Jesus with them. We have to be sure the gospel is our priority message because the gospel is the first message people must receive. Now, we know this was Paul's example. Let's look at this real quick. Turn back. We see here he delivered unto them what was most important and he delivered it first of all. But turn back to 1 Corinthians 2. And I've quoted this passage, or at least part of this, several times through the series. Let me just kind of read the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 2 and we'll talk a bit about it. Paul writing, said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or out of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined... Not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and preaching was not in the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and the power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's a great passage. wish we had a lot of time to look at it, but we don't. I just want to point out a few ideas that we see from this. Right? Paul's focus when he planted the church at Corinth It was Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He focused on the gospel. He didn't focus on being eloquent. He said He didn't come with the wisdom of men. And He didn't come with the enticing words of man's wisdom. He was okay with His presentation being a bit rough around the edges. He didn't have to have all the right words at all the right times saying it just the right way. Being accurate in the message of the gospel was more important to Paul than being eloquent. With the message of the gospel. He didn't focus on being wise by human standards. Right? He didn't try to impress them with his knowledge of ancient Near Eastern literature. He didn't try to impress them with his knowledge of Roman political deliberations. He didn't try to impress them with his knowledge of Greek and Roman history. He didn't try to impress them with his knowledge of anything they would have considered impressive. The only thing he focused on was the gospel. He didn't focus on extraneous issues. He determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He didn't try to explain the bowls of judgment. He didn't try to explain the second coming. He didn't try to talk to them about the terrible nature of Corinthian immorality, except as it related to them and their need for Jesus. He didn't focus on the need for a new governor of Corinth or how the trade guilds were jacking up the prices on goods in the city. He focused on the gospel. That was his primary message. Why? Why? Because all of those other things, they were real things. Why focus just on the gospel? Why not be wise by human standards when Paul was super intelligent, we know? Why not focus on the extraneous issues when Paul had increasing wisdom from God to give good answers to those issues? Why make the gospel the priority? 
Because it is the first message people must receive. John records Jesus saying, He that believeth on him on Jesus is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Jesus says those who believe are not condemned, and those who do not believe are condemned already. Believe what? Believe the gospel. Believe him. Everything rises and falls with what a person believes about Jesus. Everything rises and falls with how a person responds to Jesus. Those who do not receive Jesus, those who do not believe the gospel, will not see the eternal life Jesus came to give. Rather, they are condemned already. Right? So there's nothing they have to do to be condemned. They're already condemned because they don't believe in Jesus. And the wrath of God abides on them. Now that picture of the wrath of God abiding on them is something that should always be in our minds. Because the picture is that the wrath of God is like sitting over their heads. It is already a part of who they are because of their rebellion against God and their unbelief in Jesus. And at some point that wrath will fall on them. And they will face the fullness of the terrible nature of the wrath of God. So those who haven't believed on Jesus, they're not okay. They're not going to be fine. They are condemned. They're living under the wrath of God. And unless they repent of their sins and believe in Jesus, they will face this wrath. This is why the gospel must be our priority message. There is no other message that will deliver them from the wrath of God. There is no other message that if they believe will free them from the condemnation. But what if? What if they're not going to vote right in the next election? What if they're in favor of abortion? What if they think homosexuality is fine? What if they believe in evolution? What if they're in favor of free love and think transgenderism is just the way you're born? Now those are issues. I'm not going to say they're not. But they aren't the primary issue. They aren't the number one issue. The number one issue, the priority issue, the main issue. What are they going to do with Jesus? Who do they say Jesus is? Because the reality is, it does not matter what they get right if they are wrong on Jesus. right? If they are going to vote in all the ways that are right, if they believe that abortion is a sin and they are consistently pro-life, they think homosexuality is a sin, they believe creation over evolution, but they do not believe in Jesus, they are still condemned. And the wrath of God still abides on them. If they get Jesus wrong, it does not matter what other issues they get right. Everything rises and falls on Jesus. Now the rest of the issues. Again they are issues. But they are discipleship issues. They get Jesus right first. And then we begin to say. Here's what the Bible says about life. 
Here's what the Bible says about sexuality. Here's what the Bible says about creation. Here's what the Bible says. But this is after they have repented of their sins and they have believed in Jesus Christ. They are discipleship issues, not salvation issues. This is why the gospel message is the priority message. And so what we must do is prioritize the gospel. We have to stay on message like Paul did. Not get distracted. Even if they ask questions that would lead us down rabbit trails. If we're talking to them and they say, well, I don't understand the bowls of judgment from Revelation. Our response should be, but what are you going to do with Jesus? If we're talking to them and they say, I had this issue come into my life and I don't understand why God would allow it. That's a real issue. But our response should be, but what are you going to do about Jesus? If they say, well, I don't understand what happens to the people in Africa that never get to hear the gospel. Do they die and go to hell? If so, I don't think that's right. Our response should be, well, that's not you, is it? So what are you going to do with Jesus? The gospel message is the first message people must receive to be saved. So it must be the priority message. And we must prioritize it above all other messages. Secondly, the gospel is the first message people must receive. Secondly, the gospel is the primary way to push back the darkness. Sunday morning we started talking about spiritual warfare and we'll be in Ephesians talking about spiritual warfare for several weeks to come. And in talking about spiritual warfare and talking about how to push back the darkness in a community, the question arises, how do we do this? What is the best way to push the darkness back in Guymon, Oklahoma? What is the best way to push back the darkness in America? What is the best way to push back the darkness anywhere in the world at any time? The most common answer to a question like that is we push it back through politics and legislation. The reality is those are ineffective because biblically speaking they are not the way. The Bible tells us. And gives us an example of how to push back the darkness. Turn to Acts chapter 19. Page 848. Acts 19 and 19 is where we're going to start. Now, this is when Paul planted the church in Ephesus. When Paul arrived in Ephesus, it was a place filled with immorality, idolatry, and witchcraft. After being there a period of time when it was just Paul going there... We see in verse 19, it says, Many of them also, which used curious arts, which is magic, brought their books together and burned them before all. They counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So, after being there for a period of time, the people involved in witchcraft, they take their books and they burn them in front of all. So, this is a, a big public spectacle. And it's significant they're burning the books because they are terribly expensive. As they brought the books together, they found they were worth 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, I I did some checking. Today, when I checked, the price of silver was $17.61 an ounce. Now, if we assume 
that one silver piece raised roughly an ounce, then the price of these books was about $880,000. A little over $880,000. That's a lot of money. That they, they could have sold the books and done something else with the money. But they didn't. Why didn't they sell the books? Why not sell them and give them? How, how many more churches could have been planted? How many more missionaries could have been sent? How much other good things could they have done with that money if they just had sold them rather than burn them? Why not sell them? Why burn them? Because those books led to enslavement. They led people to be enslaved to the spirits behind the witchcraft. And they didn't want that. So those books were sold despite the price They destroyed them so no one else could be drawn into witchcraft. That's quite a change in a person's life. That's quite a commitment. But this isn't the only change we see in Ephesus. Look at verses 24 through 27. Uh, There was a a big riot, big crowd. Verse 24 said, A certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen. But he called together the workmen of like occupation. He said, Sirs, you know... By this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone in Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned people away, saying, They be no gods which are made by hand. So not only this, our craft is in danger of being set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. The idol makers were starting to lose money. Idol making was big business. They made a lot of money by what they did. They were very well respected men. They were men of talent. They were men of skill. They were craftsmen. And they were very rich through this skill. But now their profits were low. The temples were in danger of being neglected. And the idol makers were afraid. All of this was the result of Paul going to Ephesus. So what did Paul do? When he went to Ephesus, that caused people to burn their books and caused those who were profiting from human slavery to sin to be put in a panic. Look at verse 8. And he went to the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading all things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened and believed not and spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So what did Paul do? He preached the gospel. I mean, that's it. Literally, that is all Paul did. In Ephesus, he determined to know nothing among them save Christ and Him crucified. He preached the gospel and and some didn't like it. And they put him out of the synagogue. But he didn't give up in despair. He just took those that did believe. He went to a whole other place. And he just continued the work. And he continued it for a couple of years. Until everybody in the area had heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he preached the gospel... The people who were demonically influenced through witchcraft were saved and delivered from the kingdom of darkness. Look at verse 20. And so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. The word of God grew and prevailed as Paul preached the gospel. Now, that means the word of God grew 
doesn't mean that there was more of the Bible. It means that more heard it, more embraced it. And it grew as people heard it, as they embraced it. And the idea that it prevailed is that the word prevailed over the immorality, the idolatry, and the witchcraft of the day. Instead of people turning to the, the, the false gods and saying, does Diana have the answer for my life? They were turning to Jesus. Instead of people going to the witches and saying, can you help me and cause a blessing to come into my life? They were going to Jesus. And as the gospel was proclaimed, Jesus so radically transformed people's lives, they tossed out their books of sorcery. They tossed out their idols. They stopped buying their idols despite their worldly worth. People were so radically saved, they made a clean break from their old idolatrous ways. Jesus worked so powerfully as the gospel was preached that those who profited from human slavery to sin were put were being put out of business and were afraid for their own wealth and their own safety. All of this happened because the gospel was proclaimed. Not a single protest was organized. Not a single boycott was planned. Not a single politician was voted for. The darkness in Ephesus was pushed back through the proclamation of the gospel. This is why the gospel is the priority message. And what we must do is trust the power of the gospel. The world at large does not believe in the power of our gospel. But as disciples of Jesus, we must. The world at large tells us to look to the world for solutions to spiritual problems. But we must not. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. We must believe this. Diamond is a spiritually dark place. There are loads and loads of very real, very significant, very deeply rooted spiritual issues in the people in our community. And Jesus is the answer. Jesus alone can heal the broken hearts. Jesus alone can set the captives free. Jesus alone can fix the issues that exist in our community. But Jesus comes through the gospel. Not the pragmatic methods of the world. Not the worldly ideas of those who do not know our God. If we want to push back the darkness in Gaiman, we must make the gospel our priority. It must be the priority message and we must trust in the power of the gospel. And then thirdly, to the gospel is the first message people must receive. The gospel is the primary way to push back the darkness. The gospel is the basis for our unity. No one person can do everything. No one church can do everything. Alone, you cannot reach everyone in your workplace, everyone in your school, everyone in your neighborhood, or everyone in your circle of influence. In the same way, alone, our church cannot reach Diamond for Christ. None of us 
can do it on our own. We must work with others to reach people for Christ. As individuals, we have to work with others to reach people for Christ. As a church, we have to work with other churches to reach Gaiman for Christ. But we have to know who. Because who we work with actually matters. Just because someone wants to work with us, just because someone wants to link arms and go with us, that doesn't mean we should. We have to be careful. Scripture warns us not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, the primary part for us today, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It's pretty straightforward. 2 Corinthians 6, oh I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 16. Disciples of Christ, we are not to team up with unbelievers. It's the application that can be tough to hammer out. What does it mean to, to team up, to be yoked together with an unbeliever? It is ultimately, it is to, to form a, a binding relationship with an unbeliever that could weaken our commitment to Christ or compromise our commitment to Christ or our integrity or the standard from Scripture. Now, for our purposes tonight, because there's a lot that that would mean on how it would play out, for our purposes tonight, we're going to focus on just evangelistic purposes, working together for evangelistic purposes. Now, we live in a very ecumenical day. We're told we should gather with other believers, take our eyes off our differences, focus on all that we have in common. Those that do this often appeal to the many unity verses in Scripture to give strength and weight to the arguments they're making. Now the problem is, many times these ecumenical services include groups that are not Christian. But we're told because they worship God, because they may even use the name Jesus, we should work together with them and celebrate the things we have in common. And as we see here, this is clearly wrong. But there's also a big push to have, have interfaith services. Also wrong. But as disciples of Jesus, as a church of Jesus Christ, we may have common ideas of morality with Mormons. But we cannot yoke up with Mormons to try to reach our community for Christ. As, as disciples of Jesus, we may have similar interest in morality as it relates to, to living right with Jehovah's Witnesses. But we cannot yoke up with the Jehovah's Witnesses to reach our community for Christ. We, we cannot yoke up with the Christian sciences. We cannot yoke up with any other pseudo-Christian organization anymore. Then we could yoke up with Muslims or with Buddhists or with Wiccas or with Hare Krishnas. We cannot work with people who are not Christians, who do not believe the gospel. That would be compromise on our part. And we cannot compromise on the gospel. There is no basis for unity with those groups. As Paul says, what fellowship, what communion, what part do we have with them? 
And the answer is nothing. At least nothing which could be a basis for unity. But here's where we need to make a clarification. Paul clarifies these false teachers are unbelievers. And that's the key. This text is often used and abused to mean we should separate from other believers who believe differently than us on secondary issues. We should separate from other believers who have different doctrinal stances than we do, who have different standards than we do. But this isn't what this passage is talking about. This passage cannot be used to say we should separate from believers who use contemporary music while we use hymns. We can't use this passage to say we separate from believers who use the NIV while we use the King James. We can't say we separate from believers who believe eternal security when we believe in the possibility of apostasy. We can't use it to say we separate from people who believe in infant baptism, infant sprinkling, while we believe in immersion as believers. And this is important for us. It's important for everybody, but it's important for us. Because free will Baptists are often separatists. Free will Baptists, we have typically no fellowship, no communion, and no co-laboring with those who aren't free will Baptists. And if you've been a free will Baptist outside of this church, you also know that very rarely do we have any union, any fellowship, any communion, any co-laboring with other free will Baptists because they might believe different than us about some minor matter of doctrine. This is wrong. We can work with other peoples and other groups who believe the gospel because the gospel is the basis of our unity. Not what Bible version we use, what kind of music we sing. If we agree on the gospel and thus Jesus, we can disagree on all sorts of issues and still work together to reach the lost for Christ. Work together to seek and to save those who are lost. If we can only work with other free will Baptists, we are in a pickle way out here. If we can only work with people who believe just exactly as we do on every jot and tittle of Bible doctrine, we're in trouble. Because I bet you we could go around the room tonight and there are differences in issues that we have. Whether it would be the end times, whether it would be about women pastors, whether it would be about any number of issues. We have differences in secondary issues. What we have in common is what matters. And we have Jesus in common. He is most important. The gospel message is the priority message. And because of this, we must work with other gospel-believing churches and individuals. We must. I meet nearly every Tuesday morning to pray with other pastors in our community. And our group comes from a variety of theological traditions. There's me, a free will Baptist. There's the Methodist pastor. There's a Pentecostal pastor. Non-denominational pastor. A couple of Nazarenes. And Assemblies of God. And a Southern Baptist pastor in our group. We vary in ages. From... Late 20s, early 30s to mid 50s. We vary in ministry philosophies. As Baptists, we believe in the autonomy of the local church. And as Methodists, they believe the bishop appoints the pastor to go where they're told to go. We differ on music. 
We differ on Bible versions. We, we differ on very, very many things. But there is one key thing we have a death grip on that we agree on. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for our sins according to Scripture. And He rose again on the third day according to Scripture. And all who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ will be saved. For salvation is of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We share a similar burden to see this community one for Christ. To push the darkness back. See the churches revived. And to see the community transformed through the gospel. And since we have those issues in common. We can overlook and ignore the stuff. We don't have in common. Because in comparison they're insignificant. And this is what must happen. If diamond is to be one for Christ. And it's not a matter of. We all believe the same on every single thing. We don't. It's not a matter of we act like those things aren't real. We talk about them at times. What do you believe about this? Oh, well, we believe this. It's not a matter of, of trying to force something. We know where we differ. But we also know what matters most. And we know that what matters most is Jesus. And that's what we have in common. So we work together for that. It's what... Churches must do if we are to reach Diamond for Christ. Because no church in Diamond is going to reach Diamond for Christ by itself. It doesn't matter how big it is. And that's what you must do as an individual if you want to reach the people in your life for Christ. You can't reach everybody that you know is lost by yourself. You need other people. To come alongside you, to pray with you, to pray for you. To maybe talk to people who won't listen to you. We cannot do it alone. We must work with other disciples of Jesus who share our commitment to the gospel of Jesus. As a church, we must be willing to work with other churches of Jesus who share our commitment to the gospel of Jesus. We must Church in America is in sharp decline in a big part because we have built up individual denominational kingdoms in our towns and we don't talk to each other. We don't like each other. We don't have anything to do with each other. How horrified our Savior must be when we cannot work with others who love Him who believe in Him, and who are devoted to Him just because we differ on secondary issues. We must lay aside these things. Not compromise. Not stop being free will Baptist. But focus on what matters most, which is the Gospel. The Gospel is the priority message. And so we must work with other gospel-believing churches and other gospel-believing individuals. Let's pray.